you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 86. Psalm 86. This morning we will be in the book of Psalms again, uh, but back uh, in the book of Acts next Sunday. So Sunday the 8th, we will get back into Acts. We'll begin Acts chapter 8 on September 8th. So we invite you back for that to get back into our our study through the book of Acts. This morning, uh, we'll be in uh, Psalm 86. We'll get there in just a few, just a few uh, minutes. On October uh, 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his now famous uh, 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Church. Uh, it was an act that uh, became the beginning of what we know as the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation's aim was to reform the Roman Catholic Church. That did not work, right? That did not happen and uh, split off from it and so became uh, its own thing. The main doctrinal positions of the Reformation can be summarized in, in five phrases that are known as the five solas. The word sola is uh, Latin for only or alone, and those five phrases, you've probably heard them, whether or not you knew they were the five solas or not, whether you know, knew they were connected to the Protestant Reformation or a summary of the Protestant Reformation, uh, you may not have known. But, but here are the five. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, God's glory alone. And to that we say, amen, right? Right? Part of the Roman... Part of the, the Reformation had to do, namely, with how, how one is saved, right? how, how salvation actually come about. And so that's why we see Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and how do we know all those things in the Scriptures alone. And all of this is to the glory of God alone. Uh, this morning, we will be considering the idea of living our lives for the glory of God alone. So our, our intention will be to look mostly or only at number five of this. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, some of you may be familiar with that. The very first question in that catechism says this, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God or to honor God and enjoy him forever. Now, the Bible is not silent on its call for us to, to glorify God. If you've been in a church, if you've come to a church, if you know anything about the Bible, you've probably heard that language. Uh, that's nothing really new to us. And so when we talk about glorifying God, some of you probably think, I probably heard this before. And quite frankly, you probably have. Uh, here, here's, here's the truth of, of what a, a pastor's job is. A pastor's job is not to tell you anything new. Did you know that? It's, really, it's very relieving as a pastor that my job is not to tell you anything new. Uh, these are old truths. We're teaching old truths. And what we're asking is that God would give us a new depth to an old truth. That God would open our eyes again, or a little wider, or a little more clearly to see an old truth. There's no new revelation here. The revelation has been given. We have 66 books of revelation. We don't need new revelation. We need obedience to the revelation that we have. The scriptures are clear about God wanting us to glorify him with our life. It's well known. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, that's probably a verse that some, some came to, to your mind, even as I talked about giving glory to God. It says this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
It's a pretty common verse in, in church world. Uh, we've heard that a lot. Uh, Paul is writing, the, the Apostle Paul is writing there. And he's actually talking about uh, this issue that was in the church of, of if you can eat meat that has been offered to idols. And if your conscience is, is concerned about that, what are you supposed to do about that? And his concluding thought was the, the verse, uh, one of his concluding thoughts was the verse we just read, that whether you eat or whether you drink or, or whatever you're doing. So he extends it. He's talking about the eating and drinking and then he extends it beyond that. He says, whatever you do, it's to the glory of God. So whatever your job is, it's to the glory of God. Whatever your relationships are like, it's to the glory of God. However you spend your time in in recreation or leisure, it's meant to be to the glory of God. That's the goal. That's the goal of the Christian life. Whatever we do. A.W. Tozer, in his classic book, The Pursuit of God, has said this, it is not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It is why he does it. The motive is everything. Let a man sanctify the Lord God in his heart, and he can therefore do no common act. So this morning, as we think about glorifying God, we're not talking about uh, go be a Bible teacher or go be a pastor or, or go be a missionary. First of all, if you're a Christian, you are a missionary. But we're saying this, that whatever occupation you have, whatever thing you do, wherever you live, whoever you interact with, it is meant to be lived to the glory of God. Your life is about the glory of God. Now this actually is a reorienting principle. Now you might know that truth, but that truth actually reorients your life. Because there is a tendency in the human condition to think that you are the center of the universe, right? We, like, there's narcissism in all of us, right? That there's a sense that there is, uh, I'm very, very important. And it's not that you're not important, but it's not, you're not the most important thing. Many, many of us have heard this call to live for the glory of God hundreds of times, and yet we're prone to live for our own glory. We're, we're all prone to do that. In fact, unless and until you come to believe that you exist, that you exist for the glory of God, your life will not make sense. You'll be very frustrated at how life is going because you're going to say, I'm not getting what I want out of this life. I thought life was supposed to be all about me. I thought I was to get to do what I want to do and live the way I want to live, right? That, that's, that's the bill that you're being sold. And when it comes to it, you find out that that's actually not true. That's actually not true. That's not why you were made. People want to live that way because we're, we're selfish and we want what we want. But you weren't created to live that way. You were created to live to the glory of God. And in that, it is in no way diminishing your life. It's not saying your life doesn't matter. Quite the opposite. It's saying your life matters so much that it actually matters that, that your life can actually bring glory to God. That God can be honored in your life. That elevates your life. It doesn't diminish it. It doesn't say your life doesn't matter now that I can't do what I want. In fact, the more that we know God, the more we want what God wants. And the more our life will line up with what he wants for us. The question really is, is is our life actually being lived that way? We can agree to these things, and we ought to agree to these things that have been said. Agree to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. We can all agree with that, but then we have to ask the question of, of, is my life actually being lived to the glory of God? In my everyday, day to day, 
take your Saturday, 24 hours ago, was Saturday lived to the glory of God? Is this day today being lived to the glory of God? You say, well, Mark, I'm in church today. <laughs> that, that sounds like a good way to glorify God. And you're right. Absolutely. This is a good way to bring glory to God is by worshiping the one true God, which we will look at in just a moment. But what does that actually look like? Or, or how do we live to the glory of God? One Puritan author, Thomas Watson, suggests living for the glory of God consists of four things. The first one is appreciation. Uh, to glorify God is to set God highest in our thoughts. We're going to look at this passage in just a minute, but if you just look at verse 8, we are going to get to Psalm 86, don't worry. But if you just look at verse 8 for a second, it says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Do we realize that, that God is um, greater than all things, and do we actually put him highest in our thoughts? Now, again, church answers are, yes, God's greatest. Of course he's the greatest. No, one's gonna, no one in here today is going to argue with me about whether or not God is the greatest. Right? That's not an argument that we're going to have. The argument that we're going to have is how you actually live out that God is the greatest. Right? The, the practical outworking of believing or putting God in highest, highest in your thoughts, how does that live itself out? Watson is saying that appreciation is part of that. It's actually recognizing the, the, who God is. It's recognize that, that all that you have is from him. You owe him everything. It's all grace. Your life is all grace. There's an old song called, well, okay, it's not that old, but it's old for me. Uh, it's called Were It Not For Grace. It's not actually that old. I shouldn't have said that. But um, yeah, let's keep going. Here's the lyrics. I'm going to get myself into trouble. Uh, here, here are the lyrics. Were it not for grace, I can tell you where I'd be, wandering down some pointless road to nowhere with my salvation up to me. I know how that would go, the battles I would face, forever running but losing this race, were it not for grace. Glorifying God involves appreciating God for what he has done. It involves recognizing that you are a product of the grace of God. Living to the glory of God means living in appreciation for what he has done. Secondly, it's adoration. It's appreciation and it's adoration. Adoration is another word for worship. It's another word of saying that, that I'm giving to God, ascribing, that's a, that's a Psalms word, ascribing worth to God, right? That's, that's the way I live my life. Or Psalm 29, two, give unto the Lord the glory, do his name, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. He alone is to be worshiped. Exodus chapter 34, God says of himself, I am a jealous God. Why is he jealous? Because he's arrogant? No, he's jealous because he's, he's a God of truth. He's saying, I'm the only one who deserves the worship. There's no one and nothing else that should ever be worshiped. To worship God is to glorify God. To worship God is to glorify him and not ourselves. But self-worship Self-worship is much easier than we might like to think. It can be pretty subtle, can't it? There's moments, there's thoughts of, I, I did pretty good, didn't I? I, I? I did that. Look at me. I did that. Look, look at that thing that I just did, right? And it, it might be a passing thought. It might be a thought that said, whoa, yikes. But it could be a little more um, or less subtle than that. We're going to get to this passage in a couple weeks in Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, there's a guy, king, named Herod. 
And Herod, um, on this appointed day, he put on his royal robe and he sat down upon the throne and delivered an or- oration. He, he, he did a speech, right? And the people were shouting, this is what they're shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. So they're congratulating him. They're saying, wow, look, listen how good he speaks. Look, 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 how, look how awesome that is. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. You know the next part is? And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. God's not messing around. God is not mocked. God will not be dishonored. He he will not be disrespected. He will not be ignored. He will judge false worship. He will judge self-worship. Glorifying God involves adoration to the one true God. Thirdly, glorifying God involves affection. Affection or, or love for God. One of the ways we glorify God is by loving him. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. One pastor says this, to glorify God fully and enjoy him fully, you have to look deeply at yourself and at what keeps you from deeper intimacy with him. Or said maybe a little bit differently. What, what is preventing you from giving all of your affection to him? What else is in your life that, that you have affection for more than him. Do we have affection for other things? Absolutely. Do you love your wife? Do you love your husband? Do you love your family? Absolutely. And those are not wrong. If they're in the rightful place, God deserves our ultimate love. So what is keeping us from living to the glory of God? When we do marriage counseling, uh, we talk to the couples about what one writer calls your functional center. And your functional center is what your life outside of Christ actually revolves around. So in the moments where you are prone to, uh, to disobedience or to your own desires, what is it? Is it money? Is it your job? It could actually be your spouse. Is it pleasure? Is it leisure? What, what, what is the thing that, that you, would, you would gravitate to left to yourself? And what that does, that exposes something about our heart. Exposes that there is there are other things that captivate our heart. And what what Christianity is about is that Christ is actually captivating our heart, and that's why you would give your life to Him. That you see Christ for who He is and what He has done, and that's why you would live for for Him. Professor and author Jamie Smith writes this: To be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. We all do that. The question is what you will love as ultimate. You are what you love. If glorifying God is about glorifying God with our affections, then we have to ask this, what do I love? Or the way the gospel says, where is your treasure? That's where your heart will be also. What do you love? Fourth, subjection or dedication, devotion to service. 
If we want to glorify God, part of what that looks like is our devotion to him, our subjection to him. Glorifying God means living for him. It means bowing the knee to him. It means coming to know him as father, as savior, and as king. And when you do that, Listen, some people look at Christianity and think that it's, it's a power move, that God is, is ruling with an iron fist. That's not actually true. What we actually come to find when we come to know this God and know his word is that it's not out of duty anymore that we obey. It's actually out of joy. Because what we come to know is that the Bible actually is for our good. It's not to keep you from things as much as it's keeping you close to him. For you to know him. So to glorify God is to be in subjection to him, to bow to him. And here's the reality. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 tells us something about that. It tells us that there's going to come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But you know the problem with that is? Is that when that happens, it's too late to know him as Savior. You will only know him as judge. Paul says in the book of Corinthians, Behold, today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Now you can know him as Savior. Now you can bow the knee, not, in, not, not because you have to, but because you see him as the one that he actually is. You hear that, that God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for your sins, that you could be forgiven. You find that, that you, there's rescue that God offers from eternal separation from him. And you learn that that's all by confessing our sins, repenting and believing in Jesus as Savior as Jesus as your only hope, as Jesus as the only way to the Father. That's how you can know him. That's how you can know him as your Savior, how you can bow the knee and bow your heart to him even this morning. Psalm 86. As we come to this psalm, we read about David giving glory to God. We're going to look at verses 8 through 13. In two times here, he mentions this idea of glorifying God. Let's look at the first time in verses 8 through 10. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations have made, you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things, and you alone are God. Stop there. David here is actually looking forward to when all nations will worship the Lord. We could see this actually in the book of Revelation. He, he sees, he, we see it here in verse 9, when all nations will come and worship him and glorify his name. What are we seeing? We're seeing worship connected to glorifying. And what did our Puritan brother tell us about? Right? Adoration. We glorify God by worshiping him. Here it's connected again. Verse 9 tells us of, of this response to who God is, that they worship and they glorify. And again, we said that this is a uh, seeing something that is to come, and we find the fulfillment of it in Revelation chapter 15. Listen to these words. And they, sing, <clears throat> and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Whereas this day, this day in Revelation chapter 15, is yet to come, David moves on to, to talk about the motive for the day. He actually bookends it. As you listen to it, maybe you saw it. Look at verse 8. 
So if, if verse 9 is saying that they worship and glorify, look at verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Then look at verse 10. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So he's bookending this, this response with the reason for the response. Verse 8 is because of who God is and his works. God is not like any other, therefore he is to be glorified. And then in verse 10, we see it really clearly because he uses the word for or because. So they worship and they glorify. Why? Or because, because of what? For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Again, we see this greatness. We see what he has done, wonderful things. And we see his exclusivity that he alone is God. Therefore, he alone is to be worshipped. If he's the only God, then he's the one who gets the worship. It's really that simple. You're not God, you don't get the worship. Your spouse isn't God, they don't get the worship. Your, your job isn't God, they don't get the worship. God alone is God, and he gets the worship. Well, David then moves forward um, to, to looking, instead of looking into the future, he, he focuses on his own relationship. Look at it in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That, what a great prayer, right? What a great prayer to pray. Then he says this, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Again, glorifying God consists of appreciation, giving thanks. We said that already. And here David is connecting them, giving thanks and glorifying the name of God. And he follows this with, with the reason, right? the motive. We see it in verse 13. For, because, great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Why? Why would he give thanks? Why would he glorify God? Because he's supposed to? Because that's what you're supposed to do? Because that sounds right? Because he wants, get, he wants God to love him more? He wants to get something from God? No. Because of what God has already done and who he already is for you. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Start with that steadfast love. Steadfast love is, is uh, we look, look, actually look down to verse 15. We see it again here. But you, O Lord, are a God of mercy and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This language comes all the way back from Exodus chapter 34 with Moses, where this statement is made, and we see it multiple times throughout the Old Testament, that God is slow to anger, he is abounding in mercy. He is steadfast in his love. This steadfast, some of your Bibles might call it loving kindness. Uh, the actual word here is the idea of, of loyalty, love. It's the idea that God loves because God loves. And his love for you is not dependent on your love for him. His love for you is not, doesn't go up and down based on your obedience. It's a covenant love. It's a love that he chooses. It originates with him. So when David says, for great is your steadfast love toward me, what he's saying is you love me. You love me not because I do good. And remember David, not so good all the time. And yet God's great love for him, he's recognizing. Is that not a love worth glorifying God over? Yes, it is. And David is acknowledging that. He's, he's seeing that. In the New Testament, John writes in 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 
And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The rest of verse 13 says, you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. That's what he did for David. But as we come to the table this morning, we see how great God's steadfast love is towards us. As he delivered our souls from death, ultimately eternal death, ultimately eternal separation from God. That's the greatness of God's love for us. And what is the response to such love? It's to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for him. That's what glorifying means. It means honoring him. That's how the Apostle Paul writes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Because of Christ's love, I'm going to live my life for him. I'm going to honor him. I'm going to glorify him. That's the essence of living to the glory of God. Living for him and not for yourself. So we can say with David, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, I will glorify your name forever. I hope that's true for you. I hope that this day, even this day, September 1st, at the end of the day, you can lay your head on your pillow at night and say, God be glorified. And tomorrow, as you wake up, you can pray a prayer. May God be glorified in my life today. At the end of the day, tomorrow, you can look back on your life and say, God, I hope you were glorified. May it be true. May it be true for each one of us and for our church as a community. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help. We are not what we ought to be. We struggle, quite frankly, to live to the glory of your name as we should. As we think about the way that we glorify you, by appreciating you, by adoring you, being subject to you, God, I pray that you would help us to evaluate our own heart even today. Consider what, what is it that stands between us and you? What is it that, that is causing us or just tr trying to some way, some form, love something more than you? Find satisfaction in something else. It's true, the chief end of man is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. God, we enjoy you by following you, by knowing you. Would you help us to know you today? For those with us that don't know you, we pray that they would see how good you are as David recounts of who you are, what you've done, your steadfast love. We see it in Jesus. May they see it today too. May they come to him in repentance and faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.